We're going to continue our series in 1 John, 1 John 2, this morning starting at verse 24. This first verse is a comment on Christian evidence, Christian evidence. Uh, If someone has experienced genuine salvation through Jesus, then that there will be manifest in that converted person visible and tangible evidence of that salvific experience. If there is actual salvific root, then there will be visible spiritual fruit. We call that evidence. It's inevitable. Notice verse 24. Therefore, let that, that, this is a continuation from the previous verses, so the subject matter is truth, and in particular, truth that is essential to the Christian faith. So, therefore, let that truth abide, and abide means remain, abide, remain in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning, uh, meaning if uh, this essential truth you have heard from the beginning abides or remains in you, then you also will abide or remain in the Son, Jesus, and in God the Father. We will expand on this more, but at its irreducible minimum, to abide means to remain. To remain. Essential truth uh, remaining in us, meaning truth that is essential to Christianity. Essential truth remaining in us means we hang on tight to that truth. We continue and continue believing that truth. And according to this verse, essential Christian truth abiding and remaining in us is evidence, evidence we are abiding and remaining in God the Father and his son Jesus. So continuing to hang on to essential truth is evidence, tangible evidence of someone's salvation. Notice verse 25. And this is the promise that he, God, has promised us eternal life. Because of our relational connection to God's son Jesus, we are promised eternal life. There are two dimensions to eternal life. One, eternal life is quantitative. Quantitative. This word eternal implies a perpetual existence. It is an infinite existence that goes on and on and on. There's no end to eternal life because it is independent of time. Second, eternal life is qualitative. Qualitative. The Greek word, ahionios, Ohionios is translated as eternal. That word implies a particular quality of existence. John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life, don't miss this, eternal life is, is, is not just a mere conscious unending existence. It is that, but it's more than that. Eternal life is an existence of intimate relational knowledge of the true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that relational, knowledgeable connection to God 
results in his life, his life being infused into our life. When? At the immediate present. John also commented on that in his earlier gospel. Notice John 10, verse 10. Jesus said the thief, the thief is Satan, the thief Satan does not come uh, except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I, meaning Jesus, have come that they, these are Christians, and in this passage are described here as sheep, metaphorical sheep, I am come that they, us, may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Greek word translated here as abundantly means a superior quality. A superior quality. So eternal life found in Jesus represents a superior quality of existence than someone could ever have apart from Jesus. I don't meet Christians that regret becoming a Christian. I I don't meet them. I do meet Christians that regret procrastinating on becoming a Christian. How often have I heard someone say, why did I wait so long? Some people teach eternal life starts at the moment someone dies. No, that's a total misunderstanding. No one waits around for eternal life. Eternal life starts at the exact moment Someone believes and receives Jesus. There are dozens of biblical examples, just two of them. John 3, 36. He who believes, present tense, in the Son, Jesus, has, present tense meaning right now, has everlasting life. Everlasting life is the same as eternal life. John 6, 47. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes present tense, in me, in Jesus, has, present tense, everlasting life, meaning eternal life. Eternal life is a Christian's right now, present possession. Um, In 2013, Micah Redding, and I don't know Micah Redding, um, I just found him recently, Uh, Micah founded what he calls the Christian Transhumanist Association. Christian transhumanism, because a significant percentage of uh, transhumanists are atheists. Uh, If that word transhumanist is unfamiliar, uh, transhumanism is a philosophical and cultural position that encourages human advancement through technological means. Uh, Transhumanism encourages the use of artificial enhancements to push mankind towards something more than human. Um, And like other cultural movements, there are subsets and subgenres of thought under transhumanism. There are some admirable motivations uh, behind transhumanism. For instance, uh, the intent to reduce suffering and improve the quality of life, that's a good thing. Taken to an extreme, though, transhumanism can become a pursuit of immortality, uh, an escape from moral boundaries, or a form of religion in and of itself. Uh, the ultimate salvation of mankind is something that only God can bring about, not some technological advancement. 
But the Christian Transhumanist Association is a group that is supposed to bring the evangelical Christian faith and ethics into transhumanist conversations. Transhumanism, sometimes called, because of some of the extreme proponents of that movement, sometimes called the world's most dangerous idea, is finding more and more acceptance in popular culture. Transhumanists are sometimes described as wanting to transplant brains. I would sign up for that personally. I need one. Uh, Upload themselves into the matrix. uh, Create runaway artificial intelligence. Or freeze their corpses. That practice is called cryonics. But that isn't true about all transhumanists. Um quote-unquote Christian transhumanists believe that human capabilities can be radically enhanced and advanced through science and technological progress to ultimately benefit us and in a collective sense benefit the Christian cause. But again, there are various opinions about this entire movement. Some anti-aging researchers have applied biomedicine in an attempt to improve humanity. One scientist named Aubrey de Grey studies preventive maintenance for the human anatomy. And he actually believes, get this, this man believes the first human to live one to 1,000 has already been born. That's hard to imagine, that there is a human being alive now on earth that is going to ultimately live to be 1,000. Some others focus on computing advances. Futurist Ray Kurzweil, who is an atheist, has predicted that in 2045, artificial intelligence will surpass human intelligence, bringing about what he calls the singularity Get this, the singularity is where everyone's brain is, is connected to the iCloud. That is a frightening concept, people. These predictions seem unrealistic on the surface, but recent breakthroughs in the science of radical aging seem to make life extension possible. Different studies on lab animals have extended their lifespans up to 30%. But understand something. It doesn't matter how long uh, someone's lifespan is extended. It doesn't matter. We will all die at some point. Hebrews 9, verse 27, and it is appointed for men to die once. Death is unavoidable. Death is inescapable. There are no loopholes. No one gets out of here alive. We are essentially all dead men walking. But this is what we should remember. Philosopher and former theological professor Diogenes Allen has made the distinction between what transhumanists call extended life and eternal life. Extended life is what scientists are attempting to create for us through scientific anti-aging solutions. Radical life extension means more time for us on this earth. But considering the deteriorating societal conditions, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Heaven is an excellent alternative to here. Eternal life is different than 
is extended life. Eternal life is something we can experience to a degree during the present. Since we receive eternal life at salvation, we experience it to some degree now. But we can then experience eternal life completely in the next life, meaning in heaven. Romans 6 verse 23. This is familiar. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't miss this. Extended life is something earned. Something earned through medical advancement, through improved dieting, exercise, anti-aging solutions. Eternal, extended life is something earned. But eternal life is something received as a gift. Eternal life is something received from God at our salvation as a free gift. 1 John 2, notice verse 26. These things, John said, I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. This is the third stated reason that John authored this book. In the previous lessons, we have mentioned the first two reasons. Reason one, 1 John was written so that we could experience complete joyfulness. Reason two, 1 John was written to discourage us from sinning. 1 John 2 verse 1. Now, 1 John 2 verse 26 states reason 3. 1 John was written to warn us about spiritual seduction. Spiritual seduction. One more time. John said, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Satan wants to seduce us. Seduce means to entice and tempt us. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Paul made this statement. Now the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, I believe those latter times are now, in latter times some will depart from the faith. Meaning some people in the end times will walk away from the historic Christian faith. Notice, giving heed to deceiving or seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. The departure from the evangelical Christian faith is called apostatizing. <clears throat> apostatizing. And the person that does apostatize is called an apostate. So departing, walking out, abandoning the Christian faith is apostatizing, and the person that does that is called an apostate. Notice the definition. To apostatize means to renounce and reject a particular religion or set of doctrines. It means to renounce and reject a particular religion or set of doctrines. Paul was addressing apostatizing as it relates to the Christian faith. But apostatizing as a word, as a concept, isn't limited to Christianity. Muslim apostates are increasing at incredible numbers. Now, Islam uh, is estimated to number some 1.8 billion adherents, which is an incredible number. But more and more Muslims are apostatizing from Islam. And that's fantastic. 
These are former members of the Islamic religion that through different means and often through dreams have come to renounce and reject Muhammad and his teachings and have then converted to Christianity. Now, this is, we, we need to remember, in Islamic countries that operate under Sharia law, not all of them do, some do, a Muslim that apostatizes, meaning a Muslim that abandons Islam and then becomes a Christian, if his Christian conversion is made public, if, if it gets out, then he's subjected to arrest, imprisonment, and most often execution. Because apostatizing from Islam and then converting to Christianity is considered under Sharia law as a capital offense. Now both John in 1 John and Paul in 1 Timothy are emphasizing that in the end times, now more and more people professing Christians will be deceived to the extent that these people will apostatize and exit the Christian faith. There are two categories of supposed Christians in the church. Two categories. First, people that claim to be a Christian. These are professing Christians. And then second, people that are actual Christians. Some people... <clears throat> are just pretend Christians going through the motions. These are Christians in name only. These are not Christians in actuality. Some of them are deliberate counterfeits, but probably most of them are just self-deceived, thinking they are a Christian and aren't. And often these pretenders ultimately apostatize and depart from the Christian faith. One of the external tangible evidences of someone's genuine Christian conversion is that that person never, never apostatizes. Never. Now, he could have doubts. I have had doubts, which is one of the reasons I have such an interest in apologetics. I have had doubts. Most Christians at some point have some doubts. And that's fine. But that person if his conversion is genuine, never, never apostatizes, meaning he never ultimately renounces or rejects the historic Christian faith. Let me mention a classic contemporary Christian apostate. His name is Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Bart Ehrman. Bart is a prolific author and lecturer. He often debates uh, evangelicals. Bart supposedly had a born-again experience and became an evangelical Christian as a teenager. He then attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, a conservative evangelical school. Then he went on to graduate from Wheaton College, also in the Chicago area. Wheaton College, Billy Graham's alma mater, it has, uh, at that time, he attended another conservative evangelical school. It has moved some to the left since then. He then did his graduate studies, earning a master's and a PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary, now a definite liberal leftist institution. And it was during that time at Princeton 
that he apostatized and he left evangelical Christianity. He started attending an Episcopal congregation and um, Episcopal church is very liberal. Uh, he attended Episcopal congregation for a decade and a half and during that time he considered himself a liberal Christian. Uh, the wording is now, quote, a progressive Christian. Progressiveness contingent on the degree of progressiveness. A progressive Christian essentially is not a Christian. Um, but he considered himself that. And then in frustration, Bart Ehrman became an agnostic hyphen atheist. Now that's strange to me. Uh, agnostic hyphen atheist? An agnostic claims he doesn't know if God exists. An atheist claims he is certain that God doesn't exist. So that's a confusing combination to me. Bart Ehrman is a Christian apostate. He has apostatized from the faith. I've seen him interviewed uh, on different YouTube videos. He's a nice man, a very nice and respectful apostate. But he's still an apostate. I would argue that Bart's teenage salvation experience was superficial and that he never experienced a genuine conversion. He professed Christ, but he never actually possessed Christ. And that's the reason he apostatized. In more modern language, apostatizing is now called Christian deconstruction. Christian deconstruction. Deconstruction is the same as old school apostatizing. Those words are basic synonyms. Spiritual deconstruction means someone has deconstructed his professed Christian faith to where he claims he can no longer believe the teachings that are essential to Christianity. That's the reason deconstruction is the polite cover for spiritual demolition. Someone that has deconstructed his faith has literally demolished the Christian faith he once formally professed. Notice the definition. Christian deconstruction or deconstructing is the practice of a professing Christian, notice professing Christian, questioning and then rejecting, rejecting some or all parts of the historic Christian faith. Now, don't misunderstand this. Questioning is actually something we recommend. We invite questions. If you are skeptical, if you are confused, if you have doubts, please come see us. We want to hear your questions. We invite questions because we are convinced that Christianity can survive the most careful scrutiny. And remember, there are no dumb questions. Now, I have some Less than smart answers, but there are no dumb questions. Questions are encouraged, especially if those questions cause someone to do the serious investigation needed to find the answers. But a professing Christian doing a superficial investigation, I have no idea. I'm not doing anything. Someone that does a superficial investigation, and then rejects the Christian faith, that's the same as deconstruction. Acts 17, notice verse 10. 
starting at verse 10. Paul and Silas were some of the earliest missionaries. Those men had been to Thessalonica and had preached in the synagogue there. A great multitude of Gentiles had received Jesus. Fantastic. But the Jewish population was upset, as often happened, and wanted to arrest Paul and Silas. So verse 10 reads, Then the brethren, meaning the Christian brothers and sisters, in Thessalonica, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. In ancient times, the Bereans inhabited the city of Berea. Berea was located in what is now northern Greece. So it was, you know, it was dangerous to remain in Thessalonica. So the Christians snuck Paul and Silas out at night and sent them to Berea. Now notice verse 11. These Bereans were more fair-minded. Some translations read were more noble or more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they, these Bereans, received the word with all readiness. I mean, these people were anxious to hear teaching from Paul and Silas. And notice, and searched the scriptures daily, meaning searched the scriptures for themselves daily to find out whether those things were so. Now think through that verse. Paul is considered the greatest Christian and theologian of all time. He authored 13 of the New Testament books. And Silas joined him as his associate. And Paul wouldn't have selected him if he wasn't a person of incredible quality in a spiritual sense. So that elite duo, Paul and Silas, team taught the Bereans. But those Bereans didn't just sit there and accept that teaching from those men, but instead returned home and compared that teaching to Scripture. None of them accepted that teaching just because it came from Paul and Silas. Instead, those Berean Christians searched the Scriptures and compared what the Scriptures said to what those men had just taught them. I contend if it was appropriate to evaluate what Paul and Silas had been teaching, then it is even more appropriate to evaluate what I and what Chris teach from this pulpit. I challenge each of us to be a Berean Christian. Don't just accept something because we said it. What does the scripture teach? Evaluate what is taught here. Be discerning. Uh, Neither Chris nor I would intentionally teach error, or deceive, but we're human, we could be mistaken. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing, this is a, a difficult verse, so listen carefully. But the anointing, this is an anointing from the Holy Spirit, but the anointing which you have received from Him, God, abides or remains in you at salvation the Holy Spirit comes to inhabit and indwell us on a permanent basis. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Now that's a questionable phrase. I'll address that in a moment. But as the same anointing, this anointing from the Holy Spirit, teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide 
or remain in him. That last phrase is stating something that is true about all Christians. A true Christian is one who abides or remains in Christ. Now, the word anointing literally means ointment or oil, as if some oil or ointment in a ceremonial sense was poured onto someone's head. That happened in anointing an ancient ruler, most often a king. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed in an inaugural ceremonial sense. Anointing someone meant pouring oil or an ointment onto the head of that chosen person. That chosen person then had that oil on him and was known afterwards as the anointed one. He was the anointed one. The word Messiah means the anointed one. Uh, Jesus was the one from God anointed to become the ultimate ruler the king of all kings. Christians have been anointed in a lesser sense, a more figurative sense. At someone's salvation, someone is anointed with the Holy Spirit. That means this person receives the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of it. The Holy Spirit at salvation, uh, in a figurative sense said to be anointed, comes to set up a permanent home address inside us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Question, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Some people um, in the charismatic movement use the word anointing in a more dramatic sense. Now, this is not heretical. It's just, I believe, inaccurate. Uh, Some people use that word to mean anointing to mean some special a uh, sensational experience that God grants to people he has chosen to anoint. I heard it said about someone that, and I thought this was uh, strange, someone said he was so anointed that he could preach paint off the walls. Why would I want to do that? Um, that's figurative language. But I don't believe this anointing John mentioned is describing a special, elevated, and esoteric form of spiritual superpower. Now, if I found someone extremely gifted, I would rephrase that as he was so gifted that he could preach the paint off walls. I just don't use that expression. It's strange. If I, paint, if I preach the paint off the walls, then I've got to repaint the walls. I don't want to do that. It doesn't make sense. I believe that this anointing is something that all Christians possess. Because all Christians at salvation possess the Holy Spirit. This anointing is the same as the inhabiting and indwelling of the Holy Spirit at someone's salvation. Now, I mentioned a phrase in that verse that is uh, questionable. So don't misunderstand this phrase. Notice the phrase, you do not need that anyone teach you. We don't need to be taught. Is that what John has said? No. John isn't advocating a mystical anti-intellectualism. He doesn't mean we don't need to be taught. He doesn't mean we don't need human teachers. That's nonsensical and counter to Scripture. According to Romans 12, verse 7, someone that has unusual teaching abilities, those abilities are considered a spiritual gift that God has given him. 
In Ephesians 4, verse 11, there are four unique persons mentioned. These persons are in and of themselves gifts to the church, gifts that Christ has gifted to the church. And these persons are apostles and prophets, and apostles and prophets uh, were those persons needed to establish the church in its beginning stages, and then those apostles and prophets ceased to exist in the original sense. And then after apostles and prophets, there are two more persons uh, mentioned. Those are evangelists and pastor-teachers. And those persons, evangelists and pastor-teachers, are intended to perpetuate the church. The word pastor means shepherd. So this fourth person is a teaching shepherd. I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, but I'm a pastor-teacher. I'm a teaching shepherd. I'm teaching at this moment because God requires that of me. Teaching is part of my job description. We need human teachers, but we don't need human teaching. We don't need human wisdom. We don't need man-centered philosophical instruction. We don't need a theological position that is more of a cultural accommodation than it is a biblical truth. The Holy Spirit can use gifted teachers to assist in illuminating the biblical text. I'm going to insert a word. Maybe it's new. I don't know. The word is illumination. Two reasons people need spiritual illumination. One, man needs illumination because of natural blindness. Man in his natural state, his unsaved, unregenerate state, is blind. Notice 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I like the rendering from the New International Version. Notice, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned, meaning understood, only through the Spirit. John 14, verse 26, Jesus made this statement, but the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Not he will teach us all things, period. No. The Spirit will teach us all things he wants us to know and bring to remembrance all things that I, Jesus, said to you. The Holy Spirit, starting at salvation, um, inhabiting us, is the Christian's internal resident teacher. We have a theological prof inside of us, the Holy Spirit. He instructs us in spiritual matters. A non-Christian doesn't have that advantage. A non-Christian doesn't have a spiritual instructor because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That means someone in his natural, unregenerate, unsaved state sometimes sees the things from God as utter foolishness. I read about a church that was constructing a new sanctuary. There was some discussion and debate if there should be paper towel dispensers in the new restrooms or these hot air 
hand dryers. Most of us have used these hot air, paperless hot air hand dryers. Uh, so that's a familiar concept. Uh, and, and that was the debate. Do we want paper towel dispensers or these hot air hand dryers? Someone on the building committee recommended uh, using paper pa towel dispensers. And uh, he had a reason. Uh, he said because he had heard about another church that had installed uh, not paper dispensers, but hot air hand dryers um, that, that had been installed. And the Sunday after those hot air hand dryers were installed in the restrooms, some smart aleck taped a note to the hot air hand dryer. That note read, punch this button for a segment from a recorded sermon from our pastor. Okay, it's been snowing, but your brain should not be frozen. Do you get that? Okay, good night. But to the non-Christian, sometimes what I do, biblical preaching, biblical teaching, to them is just hot air. It is meaningless to them because the Holy Spirit isn't resident inside them to instruct them. One classic example of that is comedian Bill Mayer. Most people recognize his name. He's been around a long time. Mr. Mayer is an outspoken atheist. Now, of late, he's been pushing back against the woke culture and saying some things of a conservative perspective. And so some people say, whoa, whoa, what's happening to Bill Mayer? Is he going to become a Christian? Well, I don't know. I hope he would, but he hasn't indicated that. He's an atheist, hardcore atheist. And in 2008, Bill Mayer made a movie that was critical of religion called Religalus. Religalus. A combination of the words religion and ridiculous, because he sees religion as ridiculous, foolishness. He's an equal opportunity offender, so in that film, he ridiculed a number of different religions, but primarily his focus was on Christianity. Now, I found this interesting. The Lionsgate Entertainment Corporation, better known as just Lionsgate, distributed that Bill Mayer anti-Christian film in 2008. Fast forward to now. Ironically, in 2023, that same corporation, Lionsgate, is also now distributing the Christian movie Jesus Revolution that is out in the theaters now. It is the historical account of the Jesus People Movement in Southern California in the 1960s and 70s. And in particular, it chronicles the conversion of the megachurch pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie. And I admire Greg Laurie. He is conducting the largest mass evangelistic crusades of anyone since Billy Graham. He has preached to more than 6 million people in his crusade audiences. Now, we have seen that movie it's an excellent movie, and I would encourage you, whenever it stops snowing, I would encourage you to go see that movie. Listen to this. That blasphemous movie, Religalous, grossed at the box office altogether, meaning all the time it was out, its total gross was $13.9 million. But the movie Jesus Revolution grossed at the box office just the first weekend it was released, 
more than $15.5 million. That's a W for Jesus. In addition, the film also received an A-plus cinema score and a 99 on Rotten Tomatoes. That's extremely rare. So please, go see it. Add to that total, and it will encourage your heart. Number two, man needs illumination because of satanic blindness. Satanic blindness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, veiled means covered, concealed. It is veiled, the gospel is veiled, covered, concealed to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing are the unsaved. Verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. The God of this age is Satan himself. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Some people don't believe. I mean, there's this inherent natural condition, you know, in a depraved state of sin that prevents them from seeing anything. Uh, And then there's a second reason, because some people, Satan has just blinded them. Some time ago in West Virginia, there was an underground explosion in a mine. And because of that explosion, one of the mine shafts had collapsed, trapping some miners. After hours and hours of drilling, the rescue team on the Earth's surface were able to drill down to those miners. One of them lowered a lantern down the hole that had been drilled. And one of the miners could hear, just above his, just above his head, could hear um, the noise from that lantern as it came down through that hole. And he heard that noise, and he yelled up through that hole, Turn on the light. Turn on the light. Turn on the light. But the lantern's light was on. And the rescue team couldn't understand what had happened until it was determined that this explosion had been so intense and so bright that he had blinded this miner. He literally couldn't see the light because of that blindness. And that's how people are. Some people are to the gospel. The light from the gospel of Jesus Christ is shining bright now more than ever. Through print, through preaching, through public media, through social media, through syndicated radio, through cable television, through the internet, and on and on and on. That light from the gospel is shining in parts of the earth that were once covered in spiritual darkness. An example, in 1900, there were an estimated total of just 10 million Christians on the African continent. And in just one century's time, in 2000, there were more than 360 million Christians on that continent. And now there are millions more. George Otis Jr., who was an adjunct professor, and lectured in one of our classes in graduate school, has estimated that 70%, listen carefully, 70% of Christianity's total evangelistic outreach from its beginning in 31 AD, 70% of all the evangelism of the church from 31 AD has occurred in the 20th century, meaning this past century. And then 70% 
of the evangelistic outreach in that 20th century took place after 1945. And then 70% of the total evangelism since 1945 happened since late 1989. As time moves on, as time marches on, the rate of evangelism is accelerating. The gospel light continues to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. But Satan has blinded the unsaved. It doesn't matter how blind, bright that light is. He's blinded them. These people cannot see the light. So the unregenerate people cannot see that light from the gospel. It is estimated that now as much as 15% of the U.S. have become agnostics or atheists. 15%. I hope that estimate is high that it's, you know, lower than that. Atheists include celebrities such as Facebook co-founder Mark Zuckerberg, cyclist Lance Armstrong, actor Woody Allen, actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner, I mentioned Bill Mayer earlier, musician Billy Joel, Penn Jillette from The Illusionist, Penn and Teller, The most recognizable outspoken atheist is Richard Dawkins. He authored the book entitled The God Delusion. A second, a close second to Dr. Dawkins is Sam Harris. He authored a book entitled The End of Faith, and he currently commands a $50,000 speaking fee. Something that bothers us is how can intelligent, sometimes genius, people, educated people, sensible people, rational people, successful people, how can these people become atheists? How is it that these people don't get that there is a God? It's because Satan has blinded their eyes. To illuminate something means to make that something more visible from shining light on it. Sometimes I have to use the light from my cell phone. To illuminate something because I can't see it as I should. Notice the definition. Biblical illumination is the spiritual light from the Holy Spirit shining onto Scripture so that we can better see and understand the meaning of that Scripture. That's the reason David prayed. Psalm 119 verse 18. David said to God, open my eyes, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Uh, The law there include the Mosaic law found in the Pentateuch, but basically it meant the entire Old Testament scriptures. David wanted the scriptures to be illuminated so he could see them and better understand them. That, I should add, is an appropriate prayer to pray before we open up and read our Bibles. God, open my eyes. Help me to see what you have for me to learn. The most often used word used in these verses we just read is the word abide. Abide. If abiding sounds familiar, it's probably because that word abide is used in John 15. In the famous parable of the vine and the branches, that word abide is mentioned 15 times in John 15. We don't have time to get into that parable this morning But let's answer the question, what does it mean to 
Abide. What does it mean? Three things are applied in abiding in Jesus. Abiding means, one, to be related to Jesus. To be related to Him. That means a connection to Jesus. Abiding in Jesus means a relational connection to Jesus. Now, I'm not an expert on on vines and branches and grapes. My brother has a degree in that, uh, among his other degrees. Um, Abiding means a connection. A vine is connected to a branch, and a branch is connected to the vine. That much I know. And that spiritual connection, if Jesus is the vine and we are the branch, that spiritual connection transpires at someone's salvation. Pre-salvation, there is a total disconnect between someone and Jesus. And then in salvation, there is this permanent connection made. So we are the branch, he is the vine, and starting at salvation, we are connected to him. So Christians abide in Jesus. Non-Christians do not and cannot abide in him. Second, abiding means to be reliant on Jesus. Reliant on Jesus. That means a dependence on Jesus. Now this component to abiding is not reciprocal. Listen carefully. The vine isn't dependent on the branch for its existence. But the branch is dependent on the vine in order to survive. Disconnect the vine, pardon me, disconnect the branch from the vine. And the vine is fine. No harm there. Disconnect the branch though and the branch is useless and lifeless. The water and nutrients the branch needs to both survive and thrive come from the vine. That means as a spiritual branch, we are dependent on Jesus for everything that is needed for our spiritual survival. I would suggest as Christians, we all need at least one God-sized project. Meaning a project that is so big, if God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. Third, abiding means to remain in Jesus. That means a continuance with Jesus. The actual word translated as abide, I said earlier, means remain or to continue. In John's gospel, two of the disciples who first encountered Jesus said to him, where are you staying? Where are you staying? That Greek word translated there as staying is the same Greek word also translated as abide. So to abide means to reside, to continue, to stay, to remain. I remember a man in our father's church. Our father pastored for 27 years. And so we were PKs, uh, preacher's kids. Also at that stage we were poor kids. But uh, I remember a man in the church named Melvin. I won't mention his last name. Probably in his late 30s, married. He had two daughters. On the surface, Melvin seemed to be a committed, committed Christian. I mean, he was so faithful. He was engaged. He was participant. He was all of that. Our church had a softball team, and he was on that team. I was still in grade school, so I, I don't remember all the specifics. 
But I do remember Melvin one Sunday was extremely upset about something related to that softball team. It could have been a teammate he was upset at. Could have been his position on the field. Uh, could have been his number in the lineup. Uh, could have been the coach of the team. I'm not sure. And anger is probably too mild of a word. But after a service, I remember, I've never forgotten. I, I happened to see it. I heard him announce in a loud, angry voice in front of other congregants. I heard him announce in a fit of anger that he was done. He was just done. It turned out he was done with Christ and Christianity. He stormed out of the church and he never returned. He was never inside another church until his funeral. Decades after that, and it was held in a funeral home, chapel, not a church. He apostatized. He died a bitter old man, far from God. See, Melvin didn't abide. Melvin didn't remain. And we have no biblical reason to believe we will see him in heaven. Because spiritual perseverance, spiritual remaining, spiritual continuance is an essential characteristic of a true Christian. In the summer of 1846, a group of 89 immigrants originating from Springfield, Illinois, that's Lincoln's hometown before becoming president, met at Independence, Missouri. Independence, a suburb of Kansas City. The Truman Library is there. Um, the group met there and headed west on the 2,170-mile-long Oregon Trail. After getting to Fort Brigger, Wyoming, the group was exhausted and behind schedule, so decided to take the best route to their final destination in California. It was recommended to the group to take a shortcut a shortcut called the Hastings Cutoff that according to the namesake, Lansford Hastings could save as much as 350 miles off the trip. That's what he estimated. And this group heard about this Hastings Cutoff, this shortcut, and determined it could save them about a month's time. That was huge. The problem was that Hastings Cutoff turned out to be a waterless wide open stretch of the Great Salt Lake Desert in present-day Utah. That Mr. Hastings, for which that route was named, had never actually traveled himself. He had just seen a map of that route that settler John C. Freeman had taken in 1845. And from that map he had seen Hastings felt it would be easier and faster than the standard trail. What Hastings didn't know was that John Fremont almost died navigating that trail. In early November, this group of immigrants had reached the Sierra Mountain Range to my left. But that supposed shortcut had put them weeks behind schedule. And then an unexpected early and heavy snowfall trapped them in the upper elevations of the mountains near Truckee Lake. Now some of you historical types have already guessed that group was called the Donner Party. 
That Truckee Lake is now known as Donner Lake. Their food supplies ran low and were soon exhausted. Some of them literally starved to death. Others of them froze to death. And we are told, according to historians, we are told that the remaining immigrants would then cannibalize the dead, meaning eat their remains in order to survive. That's a repulsive concept, but apparently that's what happened. In mid-December, some of the groups set out on foot to get help. Rescuers from California attempted to reach the migrants, but the first relief party did not arrive until the middle of February 1847, almost four months after the wagon train had become trapped in the Sierra Mountains. And of those 89 original members of the Donner Party, just 48 survived that terrible winter. Shortcuts are supposed to be easier ways of doing something. Sometimes, though, those shortcuts have produced disastrous results. In this case, the wagon train traveled at a snail's pace. There were constant challenges such as radical weather changes. Finding more food was a challenge. Crossing swollen rivers. There were conflicts with Native Americans. And all those difficulties caused those migrants to be susceptible to accepting suggested shorter, easier routes. In this case, though, the new and, quote, shorter route turned out to be much more difficult and fatal. There are no shortcuts to the Christian experience. All Christians are subject to difficulties, including snowstorms that never, never seem to end. (laughs) All Christians are subjected to sicknesses and disease, to psychological and emotional problems such as severe and manic depression, all sorts of troubles, tragedies, and temptations. But those Christians that are exposed to those things, that abide, that remain, that continue, and that persevere, and through all that, still claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are the real deal. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I just... uh, I pray that you will create inside each one of us a determination to abide. To abide, to remain, to continue, to never throw in the towel, to never apostatize, to never turn our back on you and the Christian faith. God, help us to continue, 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 because doing that is evidence, that spiritual fruit of the fact that we are legitimate, we are your children. You are our Father. We have experienced the new birth. We are saved. So I hope and pray this has been helpful. Just please continue to use this in our hearts and minds and make a difference in each of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.